death is not easy to talk about. But what if we've been looking at it all wrong? Right? Like a butterfly can't live until the caterpillar dies in the cocoon. Death is a conversion. Well, because of Easter, because of Jesus, death is no longer an ending for us. It's a transition to greater life. Jesus died so that we can live. This is love. Well, good morning, everyone, and a very happy Easter to all of you today. There's a a traditional Christian Easter greeting that I would like for all of us to try today, if you're willing to do so with me. And so here's how it goes. When I say, he is risen, will you respond, he is risen indeed? Let's give this a try. Are you ready? He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. I believe that Easter is a big deal, not because of all the modern trappings around it, like the Easter bunny and and Easter egg hunts and, and nice chocolate treats and all of that, but for one very simple reason, and that is because the resurrection changed everything. Because of the resurrection, we now know what the cross that Jesus died on is all about. We get to understand Good Friday because Easter happened. See, on the cross, Jesus died for our sins. He he entered into our pain, entered into our shame. He came and took the weight of evil itself off of us so that its power would be broken. He broke down the wall of sin that separates us from a vibrant relationship with our creator. Because Jesus didn't stay in the grave We now can see the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as God in his love, freeing us from sin, overcoming death, and announcing that one day a new creation will come. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see the love of God put into action. When we see Jesus' resurrection, when we look at Jesus, when we read scripture and we see Jesus on the page, what we come to a place of being able to do because of Easter is say, this is love. I want to talk to you today about the first part of what I just said, God in love freeing us from sin. I think it's pretty obvious that sin is not a popular word nowadays. And in fact, it can be pretty confusing as well. We're not sure what to make of that word. There's a lot of baggage that a lot of us carry with that word and and ways that people have used that word, maybe even to describe you or me. So let me tell you a story that perhaps will help shed some light on what I mean when I talk about sin. A year ago, my son Joshua, he... He'd been asking for a long time for a particular art table. It it was a really fancy thing, had drawers and sliders that came out, and the desktop could could angle itself all over the place. And at one point, he'd, he'd done something. He'd gotten mad at it and loosened a piece, and he decided that he was going to try to fix it himself. And so without telling anybody, he took what, what had been a very simple fix— And by doing it himself, things didn't quite work and and he tried another way and it didn't quite work again and then he lost his temper and and the, the piece that had come loose was now broken. It was detached 
from the desk and, and he was so upset and I remember coming into his room and, and looking at this bent up piece of metal on the ground from, from this desk he'd been so excited about and had just received and being so disappointed and so dismayed. Why, why on earth would you have done this? Why didn't you just come and, and get me when there was this problem? I would have come and helped you fix the desk. But then I realized that the answer was actually readily apparent. The answer was is that it's hard enough to ask someone for help, but it's even harder when we have to ask someone to fix a mess that we made. And it's this way for adults too. You and I, we don't want to ask God for help. We want to try to fix things on our own. We want to take things into our own hands, no matter how difficult it may seem, no matter how big it is. We are programmed by our society to say, I made a mess, now I have to fix it. Now I have to clean it up. Maybe you think that, that God can't handle the things that have gone wrong in your life. Or maybe the problem is, is that, that asking for help means that you have to ad admit that you are at fault, that you've done something wrong, that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, that there, there is a problem that has happened. And admitting guilt, admitting wrongdoing, admitting mistakes, it's an uncomfortable thing. It's an un uncomfortable prospect. And saying sorry is uncomfortable too. It's not something that we come by naturally. It's difficult. Sometimes it's difficult to admit the problem, that we have a problem. And so we just ignore it. We try to bury it. The issue with that is, is that the problem, the feelings of guilt, the feeling that you've fallen short, that you failed, it doesn't go away just because you've chosen to ignore it or you've chosen to try to tackle things on your own. It will continue to eat away at us. It continues to confront us. It continues to be a problem. And in, in our culture, we have no good word for this feeling that comes about. We have no good word for this situation that we find ourselves in as we can't confront our mess. In fact, we tend to psychologize our shortcomings. We'll recast them as being as a result of someone else doing something wrong to us. Have you ever seen that? Maybe in your life or in someone else's life, you'll see from someone, they'll, they'll be telling you, no, 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 this problem in my life, I wouldn't have it except my parents. Or, or I, I wouldn't have had this issue except society is unfair, right? Except the educational system is unbalanced. If I just had better education, better parents, if I'd grown up in a better end of town, everything would have been great. It's all because of some sort of system failure. And, and really by saying that, by blaming things on a system failure, you're not being completely dishonest. There are elements of our systems that contribute to the problems that we have. Systems carry some blame. But see, this doesn't erase the problem. If anything, it exacerbates it because now we're dealing not only with individual issues, individual guilt, but we're dealing with, with problems on a communal level, on a societal level. The issues go beyond the individual to the very essence of society itself. And again, we are met with the problem, with the issue that there is no good word given to us by our society, by our culture to define this issue. 
to define the problem that we see all around us. So what's the word for that? The Bible has a word, and that word is sin. Sin can be defined this way or understood this way. It can be understood as, as missing the mark, that you're shooting at a target and you're not hitting what you're aiming for, that, that place that you're supposed to be hitting. It can be a failure to be who we were created to be, a, a falling short of original design, our calling to be God's image bearers who reflect his wisdom and love and rule into the world around us. Sin can be defined as a rebellion, as a, a turning away, a decision to move against God or to, to move independently of God. Sin is a transgression. It's a, a crossing of boundaries. It is a violation of another person, a breakdown of relationship. Ultimately, sin is actually a power, a force in our world. Sin has a capital S. And it holds us captive. And it paralyzes us with shame. You take all of this together. You look at what sin does. You look at the feelings inside of yourself and, and we begin to realize that sin is a dead end. That all of this, it, it can begin to feel like it's a big fat game over. And we have to deal with understanding what is it that we're supposed to do with it now. If there's no hope, if there's nowhere to go, if the game is finished, if the ending is already written and we've failed, what are we to do? I think right now is a great opportunity for us to take a few minutes and discuss in the comments the way that we see sin in the world around us. So go ahead and do that, and then we'll come back together after you've put your comments in the chat.
That was some great discussion that we just had in the chat and in the comments. I'm so glad that you put your opinions in there. And I think what should become just painfully obvious is that we live in a broken world. We live in a world where we see the effects of sin all around us. And the Bible addresses sin. And and one of the ways that it does that is by showing us how individuals throughout history have dealt with it. And today I want to draw your attention to a particular follower of Jesus who fell short. Now he didn't just fall short to the point where, where it was just a little thing. You know, he didn't just say a white lie. He didn't just cross a line. No, he fell so catastrophically short of what he was designed to be, of who he should have been, that I, many people would say his story should have ended right there. His name was Peter. And Peter wasn't just a follower of Jesus. He was one of the closest friends of Jesus. And his sin was not just some little mere transgression, but it was a flat-out denial of Jesus three times when Jesus was at his most vulnerable. And so it's no wonder to me, and and if we understand the, the gravity of Peter's sin, that following his denial of Jesus, he seems a little out of whack. He doesn't seem like the Peter that we've come to know throughout the story thus far. It makes sense that he would have changed, that his confidence would seem to be gone. See, he still seems to be around the other disciples, but not. We see Peter at the empty tomb, but that scene there, the only thing that we're told is that that John believed when he saw the empty tomb. We're not told what Peter thought. And then we begin to see Jesus appearing to people. He appears to Mary and calls her by name. And he appears to the disciples and passes through a locked door to get to them. But we're not told if Peter is there. And Thomas says that that he doesn't believe, that he won't believe unless he sees Jesus' wounds. And so Jesus shows up again and shows Thomas his hands and feet. Yet still, Peter isn't mentioned. It's not until the next chapter when John, in his account of Jesus' life, we find in the Bible, gives a long narrative of Peter's encounter with the risen Jesus. As many people that are going through a rough time will do, especially someone that used to be a fisherman, Peter announces to his friends that he wants to go fishing. And, and so a group of them go and they, they get into the boat and they go out onto the water to go fishing. This is exactly the kind of thing that you'd expect someone trying to figure out life to do. You, you have to wonder to yourself, how is Peter feeling at this moment? Where's Peter's head at? You know, you can imagine what was going on in in his mind as he's been experiencing these things and hearing from others. And, you know, I denied Jesus three times. And and now it seems like maybe Jesus is alive, but that kind of makes things worse because it means I never should have denied him. It means that he actually was who he said that he was. and, And by denying him, like, will he forgive me? Will he care about me? Can, can I ever manage to face him again if it comes to that? See, it's hard to say I'm sorry when the wrong is this deep. 
So how did Peter recover? How could he recover? Here was Peter. He was supposed to be the rock on which the church would be built. He had walked on water. He had confessed Jesus as the Messiah, and now he had denied him. Thought must have crossed his mind. How could my friends even be with me right now? How can they stand to be around me? I denied our Lord. This is what shame does to us. Shame isolates us. Shame tells us that that we're the only one. It says your sin is uniquely disqualifying, that no one else has done anything that is quite like it. Sin makes you the exception in the worst way. Shame says one person, you are the one person who cannot be forgiven, that you have done the one thing that can't be set right, that you are past the point of return, that you have fallen too far. See, it's shame that tells you it's game over. It is the end. Hope is gone. And you know, in a sense, it's true. Sin is a dead end. The Bible puts it this way. The wages of sin is death. When you sin, it causes a disconnection with the life giver. But what I want to point out to you today is that shame, and when I talk about shame, I mean the kind of shame that comes from actual guilt, something that you've actually done wrong. Shame is not really a liar, In fact, what shame does is it tells the story when Jesus is removed from the equation. It tells us the reality of your sin when the hope of Jesus is removed. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't stay absent. In the middle of all that was going on in Peter's mind, Jesus showed up that day during Peter's fishing trip. We read this, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. And then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. And so they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. And then the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. Here's what I love about this. Jesus meets Peter where he's at. I think too often we think that Jesus will only meet us when we have sinned if we go and find him. That Jesus will only meet us if we get things back together, if we get life back in order, then we can come to see him. Or Jesus will only meet us if we go to the right church. Or Jesus will only meet us if we hear the right song. Jesus will only meet us if we come to him in the right posture. But here's Peter. He tries to retreat to that old familiar place that he'd always gone before as a fisherman. And Jesus meets him right there. In fact, he doesn't just meet Peter. Jesus reenacts the scene of how he and Peter first met, his first calling. He takes him back to the start of where it all began. But things things are different this time. See, the first time that Jesus called Peter, he called him into a purpose. He said, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. But this time, he brings Peter to a person. 
to the risen Lord. He asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? For every time that Peter had denied Jesus, Jesus brings love back into the equation. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? See, friend, when you retreat in shame, Jesus comes after you again and again and again. God's love will never stop chasing you. God's love will never let you go. Nothing you have ever done has completely disqualified you from the love of God. The love of God changes everything. What Jesus did for Peter, he wants to do for you too. See, before Jesus found Peter on the beach and spoke to him, he'd already appeared to the disciples in a locked room. Disciples who were afraid, who were confused, who were wondering if Jesus had actually raised from the dead. And and if so, what did that mean for them? And here's what John writes. He says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The risen Jesus breathes new life the life of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. He breathes that into his followers. He announces that now true peace is for them. In the midst of all that's going on in your life right now, all the turmoil, all the chaos, all the fear, Jesus offers you peace. No more fear. No more shame. No more guilt or brokenness, just peace. True and deep peace. A sense of being put back together again, of being set right, of being right with God and being right with each other. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He then sends them into the world. He's making it clear here that the peace of God is not just for the disciples. Newness of life is not just for a select few individuals. That the good news is the good news for all people everywhere for all time. It is good news for the whole world. Because of the resurrection, sins can be forgiven. Because of the resurrection, sins can be forgiven. Think about it. Our sins, our falling short, our breaking of relationships, our crossing of lines are all forgiven because Jesus died and rose again. The power of sin that kept us bound, that paralyzed us, that held us in the same patterns of failure have been broken. It has no power anymore. See, to be forgiven means that you are free. Free from guilt. Free from shame. Free from the power that once enslaved you. You are now free to be fully human again. To be who God always made you to be. To reflect his image, his wisdom, his love into a world that desperately needs those things. Being forgiven means that you are free. 
Peter's life changed that day. He went on to lead the start of a movement, the most impactful movement in all of human history, the church. He preached boldly. He suffered greatly. He led believers and he taught them what it means to be forgiven and free. See, a deep love for Jesus anchored him through even the most difficult of days. And all of that began the day that Jesus found him on the shores and restored him. Friend, I want to remind you today that your life can change. Your life can change today. The whole trajectory of your life, no matter what direction you were going, can change in this moment. Maybe you thought that that it was game over and that there's no reset button to life. You hit a dead end because of your mistake or because of your habit. But what I want to tell you is that, that there is still good news, that life is not over. The game doesn't have to end. See, just as it wasn't over when Jesus died on the cross, when he was buried in the grave, if hope was gone at any time in history, that was the moment that hope seemed to die. But just as it wasn't over for Jesus, it's not over for you. Because Jesus carried your sin on himself in the cross. He became sin in our place. Because God raised Jesus from the dead in victory over sin and death, it is not over. It is not game over because sin is not the end. Friend, the resurrection changed everything. It changed everything. Let me read to you what the Apostle Paul wrote. One of the most impactful words of scripture we find in Romans chapter 5. He says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were God's enemies. While we were stuck in sin. While we were caught in in the trap. Scripture says that Jesus came and died for us. Before you and I knew how to call his name, God came running after us. God comes running. Listen to me. God came running after you. Just as he came for Peter. Now, you might be at a place right now where you weren't a few moments ago. Maybe there's emotions that are beginning to run through you, a sense of expectation, of hope, of peace, of joy. I I don't know what it may be. Maybe it's not a feeling, but there's just a calm on you and and an understanding that you need what we're talking about today. That's the Holy Spirit telling you that this is your moment that this is your opportunity, that it is not game over, but that the game has just started. That your life can change. That everything is about to change. Friend, today is your day. This is love, and it can change everything. If you're ready to invite Jesus to change everything in your life, will you declare it to him today by praying a simple prayer with me wherever you are right now, all around Pincher Creek, all around Canada, in in all the world, wherever you're watching from right now, in your living room, in your bedroom, in your dining room, it doesn't matter. Will you just close your eyes and everywhere, uh, everywhere, no matter who you are, will you just pray this prayer with me? And if you believe what you are praying, if you pray it genuinely from your heart, know today that you are committing your life to Jesus. Here's the prayer. Repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I give you my life. Please give me yours. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Transform me 
with your love. Help me to live as I was always meant to live. Jesus, I choose to follow you from this time forth. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer from your heart for the first time, if you just gave your life to Jesus, you'll see in the chat over here, if you're on church online, that there is now a button, an option to be able to say, yes, I, I gave my life to Jesus. I'm raising my hand. If you're in Facebook or YouTube, will you just go into the comments and let us know that you just made this decision by, by commenting yes so that we can celebrate along with you and be sure to follow up with us. Make sure that we can get your contact information because Jesus did not create us to be in this relationship with him alone, but he created the church to build one another up, to encourage each other, to support each other, and to see great things happening as we go into the future on this journey with Jesus. Friend, I hope that you will come and join us again next week as we continue this series on the love of Jesus and see that love conquers death. Right now, all, all around this place. Let's, let's give a hand to Jesus. Let's, let's give an applause to him for his work that he has done and for those that have just given their lives to Jesus this morning.